Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, alongside media executive Grail Hallett and soccer journalist and OTB producer Sam Griswold. Today's show, as always, is brought to you by Soccer America and Ticket IQ on OTB today. We have a great show. Ian Barker, Director of Coaching Education with United Soccer Coaches, will be our guest. Uh, I call him a returning champion because he's always got, uh, he's a great guy. Not only that, great coach, uh, great pedigree as a player, and, and also um, he, he's kind of seen it all. So it'll be great getting caught up with Ian. So guys, I know uh, each week I ask you what you are over. So I'll tell you, I'll start off this time and tell you what I'm over. I'm over, uh, you know, basically what we're seeing in the country, which is this, this constant drumbeat, the constant brutality that's inflicted upon a certain group of our fellow Americans uh, by, I stress, some, some of uh, law enforcement individuals. So, look, I have a lot of friends who are cops. I have a lot of friends that are in the FBI, good, decent people. Uh, and I think um, the bad ones can't spoil it for all the good ones, all of us. So uh, when something like this happens, we all need in one voice, which hopefully we are, um, and speak out against uh, these injustices. Now, um, having said that, I'm, I'm encouraged by what I've seen in many ways by uh, all Americans from all walks of life coming together to uh, peacefully protest, as is our constitutional right for justice and justice for all. And look, guys, even on a personal note, my own personal development, I grew up in this lily white town, and it was only soccer that allowed me to start to meet people from different cities. Uh, religions, everything. And um, it helped me as a, as a person to develop. And, you know, you're going out on, a, on the pitch with somebody and you're going to battle. They're your teammates. They're your brothers. And, um, you know, I've witnessed a lot of, lot of uh, bad stuff on a field. So it's, it's out there, everyone. So um, we are a soccer show, but I do think, and I've always felt this way, that this game touches people in so many ways that, that it can change the world. It's the world's game. Uh, Grail, what are your thoughts? Um, Flinny, I am over getting my hopes up for any high profile coaches to kind of take a stand uh, on, on racism. Um, soccer coaches? or like so that's no, so no soccer. Since this is a soccer show, I'm, I'm okay. sticking with soccer coaches. Yeah, I mean, just the, the peps of the world, the uh, Mourinho's, people like that. And again, we kind of talked about them when racism keeps bubbling up. In uh, in the Premier League, but uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of a lot of people, a lot of Don Garber, uh, Bob Bradley. You know, a lot of people have said eloquent things, um, and I'm just kind of waiting for those people. But I'm I'm over waiting because for some reason they just don't want to wade into it. The players do. The players yeah. have been very vocal, but for some reason the the, the coaches that I would love to see uh, speak out haven't. Maybe they will, but uh, surprising that they haven't because they coach a lot of black players and players right. of color. Okay. So. Sam. Yeah. Um, you know, to build off what you guys are both saying, um, I, I'm sort of over the blanket idea that athletes should not speak out at moments like this. Um, I think their mm -hmm. voices, you know, carry a lot of weight um, and they, you know, have the right just like anyone to share their opinion. Um, and, you know, this has become a global issue and I have found it very, you know, heartening to see the response from, specifically American players, but all, you know, players from all over the world, but American players playing abroad, um, Weston McKenney, I think being the, the leading example, um, because I think their voices are really important as people who live in another culture, are immersed you know, in a, a foreign country, 
um, in a locker room that's from players from all over the world. Um, and I just think they have a unique perspective that um, is really important right now. You know, I think soccer gives us a unique. I told this before. You know, it was uh, I was on a trip and. Uh, part of the wait staff was one, the one uh, woman was from Kenya, one was from India, one was from the Philippines. And they all just talked about America as this guiding light, this beacon for, for you know, what happens. And so, uh, you know, it's been interesting to see American players go overseas. And uh, now, you know, Liverpool, they all take a knee. Van Dyke's a, a player of color. You, Grail, you mentioned all the racism that's out here. What drives me crazy is when there is a certain segment of the population in this country and worldwide, I think, you know, the racism's uh, all around the world, but the denial that there's any difference in the way people are treated. It's like, no, there's no racism here. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. And I've seen it, I've seen it firsthand playing uh, with my teammates, you know, player where they're, they're, you know, John Wooden, the great John Wooden used to talk about uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was Lou Alcindor, he was such a sweet, thoughtful, person and he couldn't believe the way he was treated how one human could treat her so badly so poorly in such a racist manner you know so um i'm glad that this these uh, issues are being highlighted and and like you said i i hope this uh, this can make a big difference so let's talk a little bit about that because i think the american players around the world actually had uh, quite an impact on on the world's game um uh, with some of the things that happened uh, and Sam, you were talking about Justin McKinney and, and Sancho. Talk about them and what they did. Yeah, um, what well, Weston McKinney. So, um, yeah, I think, oh, you know. The, just, by the way, Justin McKinney is a friend of mine, a stand-up comedian. Very funny. Check him out, everybody. Um, but Weston McKinney. Yeah, well, there's been obviously a lot of focus on the Bundesliga the past few weeks. Um, it's the only league playing right now. Um, right. Over this past weekend, um, there were, you know, numerous protests happening. Um, Weston McKinney wearing an armband. Um, Jaden Sancho and Akraf Hakimi, both players at Dortmund, um, you know, had shirts underneath their jerseys that they revealed when they scored. Um, Marcus Taram, the son of the great Lillian Taram, who plays for um, Motion Gladbach, took a knee after scoring. Um, all this in, you know, solidarity with what was going on in Minnesota. Um, McKinney also shared a video on Twitter, which featured um, a number of, you know, national team players, men, women, past, present, etc., um, just with the message, you know, enough is enough, interspersed with images of, you know, police violence against black people in this country. Um, so I thought that was very powerful, too. I, I also liked hearing FIFA, you know, come out and uh, urging common sense to the refs, because I think Sancho might have gotten a yellow card when he took his shirt off. He did. Yeah, he did. And displayed the justice for George Floyd mm-hmm. shirt. So I thought that was good. You know, good on FIFA to just say, I mean, the issue of racial justice is far bigger than meeting out yellow cards for uh, for making statements. So, you know, good on FIFA for doing that. You know, the other thing, Sam, you had mentioned it uh, offline about basically the resonance that this has had, and I think in the shadow of the pandemic, because first of all, you know, um, a lot of people have been in this America first mode. Well, guess what? There's a big world out there and these problems uh, you know, are, are all across the world. And with the pandemic, we've realized that, that we are one world. We are one organism. And, um, and uh, it's brought us as a world realizing that, that we, yeah, we're all connected here. And so this mm-hmm. is, uh, maybe that's why this, is, this, is, uh, this has happened. So yeah, um, yeah I really liked, I, I liked that, uh, Sam, that, that, uh, that video. Um, yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. I don't think that's gathered, sorry, garnered like so much international attention, um, you know, in terms of players speaking out, protests all over the world. I mean, yeah. And, yeah, and a lot and, of the play. I'm sorry, go ahead, Grill. No, I was just going to say just domestically, you know, I'd mentioned Don Garber and I thought he came out with a great quote because it's been one of my pet peeves about dealing with racism. And he said, it's not enough to produce ads and have programs that talk about the issues, we need to go further. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, FIFA has tried all these kind of feel good, let's get rid of racism and hold hands and you know, pay somebody a billion dollars to write a song about it and all this other stuff. Yeah. That, let's just talk about it. We just need to talk about it openly and make changes. But forget all of this other stuff, because to me it's fluff and it's making FIFA and other organizations just feel like they've done something, like they've done their part and they're going to move on. So Yeah, it's, it seemed a little gimmicky, and as opposed to metting yeah. out some real justice to say that, you know, you, you, you can't, uh, your fans behave that way, they can't come to the game. Uh, they're, they're banned. Like, really lay down the law. So a couple yeah. things yeah. happened. You had Liverpool's Van Dijk and, and Winyama, they organized the photo tribute to, to George Floyd. 19 players took a knee. Uh, at a trading session in the picture, and then they, they hashtagged it Black Lives Matter. So interesting that the George Floyd uh, murder basically was a, a man kneeling on his neck, a, a, a corrupt police officer. And that's the same thing that, uh, that Colin Kaepernick did, just put, took a knee, not, he wasn't uh, saying he wasn't unpatriotic, he was talking about injustice and police brutality. And now that take a knee has taken on an added significance because he took a knee. He took a knee as his constitutional right in peaceful protest. He caught all kinds of flack for that, to say the least. Uh, he's out of his career. Yeah. His career is over because he took a knee during a, a football game, not to disrespect the flag, but to bring about a heightened awareness to, to that, uh, to police brutality. So then Weston McKinney, as he said, he wore an armband that said, uh, had Floyd's name written on it. And, uh, Dortmund Sancho removed his jersey after scoring to reveal justice for George Floyd. So, uh, and then you mentioned the, the FIFA, you know, weighing in on things. And look, we've always been pretty critical of FIFA here, Grail and Sam, about, you know, um, being more assertive in what's going on, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, the cutter, the, the, the workers not, you know, dying, basically, building some of these stadiums. So. Well, let, let's see what happens, too. When, when the leagues come back with fans, which will not be till it will not be this season, certainly, maybe next season. Let's see if there's been an impact, you know, because I'm not I'm not convinced that there aren't going to be fans in, you know, the Premier League and Syria and stuff doing the same stuff. And we're going to be like, oh, my God. And if those clubs and those leagues don't clamp down immediately and basically say, you are forfeiting games, then it just continues. Right. You know, the coaches, too, um, you know, who don't speak out, but LAFC's Bob Bradley did speak out. I thought it was quite poignant. He, uh, he said, if we don't mobilize all the people who believe in the same and the same values and equality and economic opportunity and the criminal justice system, then unfortunately, we'll see this type of terrible incident again and again and again. Which which we have, so uh, yeah. you know it's um it's 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 too bad. I I saw guys um, soccer related, but I watched the three part special on General Grant on the History Channel, 
absolutely amazing about the formation of this country, uh, how it almost was uh, broken apart by the Civil War and some of the ramifications from, from Reconstruction. Um, you know, so it's interesting. And some of these things are still resonating in our day, obviously. So if anybody gets a chance, uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and speaking to that, Fleming, on the flip side of the positivity was uh, Taya Katai, who's the wife of uh, LA Galaxy's um, Alexandra Katai, who came out with racist um, language, uh, I'll say, which I won't even repeat, um, on social media that had to immediately be kind of rebuffed by the LA Galaxy press corps. And then um, her husband, Alexander, the player for the Galaxy had to come up and issue a statement basically distancing himself from his own wife's uh, comments. So yeah. that was kind of the ugly side of it. Um, and, uh, you know, again, where I, I don't even, I don't even know where does something like that even, even if you thought that, why you would possibly take to social media and oh. start calling out, you know, black protesters is just beyond human. Because people, people are ignorant. And, you know, yeah. here, I think she's probably, where, where are they from? If they come over she's from Serbia? Serbian. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe they're, maybe you can get away with that in Serbia, uh, but not in a melting pot country where in America, where we, we are not perfect, but damn it, we got to try to be perfect um, as this bright, uh, bright shining beacon for the rest of the world. So uh, how embarrassing as a, as a player, as a human being for your wife to, to do that how how absolutely tone deaf so uh exactly. hopefully she is what we do in the society when someone acts that way you ostracize them so um all right so, so let's talk a little soccer uh as you said bundesliga pretty much the only league going on right now um sam what are your thoughts yeah um i just i just wanted to say one more thing if i could um i oh, sure. you know it's very possible i I, I mean, I'm certain that I've left people out who have, you know, staged protests and, you know, yeah. spoken out. so I just, I don't want to try to make it seem like I'm, you know, leaving anyone out purposely. And, you know, I'm sure more stuff has also happened. I was also trying to highlight American players. Um, but uh, yeah, going forward on the Bundesliga itself, the games, I mean, I, my biggest takeaway after watching for whatever it is, three weeks or so now um, you know, I think it's pretty fair to say the league has the most exciting young players of any other league right now. Um, I think at the forefront of that are Jaden Sancho, Erling Haaland, and Alfonso Davies, who, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more exciting young trio than that anywhere. Um, it, you know, not far behind, you got guys like Taram, Hakimi, who we mentioned, Kai Havertz at Leverkusen, Timo Werner, Tyler Adams, Yusuf Fulsenal at Leipzig, um, along with Danny Olmo, and even, you know, Gio Reyna and Weston McKinney are two very promising young players. So I feel like young players are highlighted and get a little bit more of a shot in Germany, which I think is really cool. Um, what I do wonder about, though, is uh, it's become clear the Bundesliga is trying to sort of rival the Premier League. I don't, I don't know if it wants to be seen this way. You know, it doesn't want to be seen as a place only for young players and kind of as a stepping stone league. Um, I say that because a lot of these players that I mentioned have talked about their desire to go play in England or in Spain one day. Um, so I wonder really how that's working for them. But, um, but yeah, I've been, you know, impressed with the play too tactically. I think it's more interesting than the Serie A that I watch, obviously, because the teams at the bottom of the table in Serie A are very content just to pack it in and try to play counterattack. And I've found the lower teams in Germany are a little bit more daring. You know, they press mm -hmm. high up the pitch. They try to play a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. so I, think, I think that's been really neat to see too. 
Yeah, and, Sam, and Sam, clearly the, the coaches there, I mean, you could say it's a, a league-wide thing uh, to be open to playing younger players, but clearly the coaches feel comfortable doing it. And, and um, you know, I just feel like in the Premier League, there are certain coaches like Mourinho that are just very comfortable playing, um, you know, playing players that have, that have long tenures, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. their comfort level. And they just don't like playing younger players. You know, the flip side of that is you'll have the new wave of coaches like a Frank Lampard who actually embrace playing younger players and letting them mm-hmm. stumble a bit. And uh, I agree with you. That's what makes uh, watching the Bundesliga great. And obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about um, Bayern Munich. They were just clinical against Dusseldorf and Lewandowski had a couple more goals. And they just look like they're not only marching to the league title, but perhaps uh, marching to the Champions League title as well, the way they're playing. Uh, they're playing right now, and the other teams. Yes. So, yes. Uh, you know, to go to uh, the, the players, the younger players playing in the Bundesliga, I think it's the reasons that I've been to it. It's, I've enjoyed it, watching it. Part of their whole plan is to also sell players, all right? Dortmund yeah. especially, you know, that's part of their business model is to sell certainly a – it's certainly like a, a bump up from the league. Um, and I think they're trying to market here in the United States, market here as well. But I think you're right, Sam, uh, Americans especially in the world, everybody wants to see the best league. Now, having said that, you know that uh, the best leagues over time, uh, maybe every uh, you know, 10 years or so, have, been, have changed. Because growing up, it used to be the Bundesliga. Then it was Serie A. And now it's come to the Premier League because of the TV rights. And we, I think we talked about this last week. It's an easier translation because of the English. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's English. It's spoken. It's English dominated. And it just transfers over here. Having said that, though, too, you know, we're going to have Ian on. Ian started his career in England. But, um, you, you know, the English way of playing is not always the best way of, of playing. And a lot of the players in the Premier League aren't English. So it's, uh, it goes back to our note about this being a, the world's game and, we're all so interconnected now, whether it's through a pandemic or racism or the type of players that you have on your team. So, Well, it's going to be interesting, too, after, the, you know, after we get through COVID and the financial implications is do the, do the rich teams just get uh, more dominant? And is everybody else, is there just more separation, right? Because they're going to be able to survive it far better than the clubs in the middle um, and be able to come out of it. So uh, it's it's going to be a very interesting next 12 months across the, the global soccer leagues. Yeah, and uh, I think we're going to learn learn a lot. So what's happening in the other leagues? We have the uh, Serie A. Sam, what's the story with Serie A? Yeah, Serie A on pace to return uh, Jul- sorry, June 20th um, with a couple Coppa Italia, Italian Cup games happening before that on the 13th and 14th, I believe. Um, yeah, it looks like all the games are going to be played in the evenings because of the heat uh, factor, obviously, in the summer. And they have a couple backup plans in place should not everything go according to plan, you know, positive tests or something like that. Um, the first being a potential playoff system to determine the places and even possibly using an algorithm um, based on what's called sporting merit. Uh, if the matches can't even be played at all. I don't know exactly how that would work. I think it would have to do with like strength of schedule, points you've already gotten, 
Uh, so For the overall thing, meaning like, well, cause if they do it by the game, it's like, you know, who has the most corner kicks or one of those crazy stats that would decide uh, games sometimes. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they're getting that in depth. I think it would have to be just based on the points you've already got. So or the EPL is doing points per game. Yeah. So they're going to use that as the, the, their algorithm to decide it. it that that's if they can't, if it comes the to season. It, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, Again, it was funny. I remember like the NCAA for a while there uh, in the national championships, one of the deciding factors was corner kicks. So you yeah. come, you just, uh, just go to the corner and just try to drum up as many corner kicks as possible. Just <laughs> that's absurd, a great strategy. Absurd. The old Joe Maroney. Uh, so, uh, oh, my God. So I will say uh, on, the, on this area, sorry, I mean, I, you know, it's hard to get too excited for these games in empty stadiums. But if there is one league that will look you know, the most like it usually does on TV, it will be the Serie A because in, you know, 75% of the stadiums, the lower tiers are empty anyway, because they're, you know, underground almost behind the track. So, mm-hmm. you know, it may not look so different on television. So that's not, the, those aren't the good seats. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> La Liga returns June 11th. Did we mention that? Yeah, they've got. They're going to be doing matches every day. I mean, you know, we we can go through all these leagues, and the the condensed nature of these schedules is incredible. They're basically playing, you know, every day. They're playing Monday Monday nights. Uh, they're playing for five weeks. The goal is to complete the season by July nineteenth. There is the stipulation that teams and players get at least seventy two hours of rest between matches. That was uh, tell tell the NCAA that. Tell the NCAA that that was negotiated by the players union. But yeah. these guys are these guys are gonna be really exhausted because remember too is they're coming back after a long layoff and they're probably they're not gonna be as fit as they were when they stopped. Right. So not, of course. not only and which which is why I think we all agree the five subs rule is a very good rule. For at least for this, the remaining. Yeah, but you know, yeah, they, they, look, some of these things are going to work. Some of them aren't going to work. It's uh, this is a you know once in a lifetime thing that seems to be happening. So um, we'll see what works and what doesn't work, and we learn and move on. So uh, EPL's project restart. Uh, Grail, why don't you tell us about that? Well, the, I'm just happy that that the seventeenth. I'm just happy that name is going to be put to rest, so we can get <laughs> rid of project restart after June seventeenth. So. They've got a couple makeup games on the 17th, uh, Aston Villa against Sheffield United and Man City Arsenal. And then they start in earnest uh, the weekend of June, you know, June 19th through the 21st. Um, they're looking to finish by July 25th. Uh, this is kind of interesting. They're going to do 10 games each weekend at different times, which will allow TV viewers to watch every game live. And they've, the way that they're able to do that is they've got Sky, BT Sport, BBC4, and Amazon uh, as the broadcast partner. So there's just going to, you know, matches every day of the week to get 92 matches in in three weeks. Wow. All the leagues are kind of looking at the same thing. It's going to be organized chaos. I mean, as a, right. as a supporter, I'm not sure how I'm going to even watch these games. I mean, I, was, I know, Sam, you're going to be, you know, with Syria. I'll probably be more with the EPL, but I mean, even with my insatiable appetite, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to handle all of this soccer that's going to be bombarded at us over the next month or two. Yeah, yeah, it's coming back strong. I don't know. Yeah, and all in the big, huge wave that's hitting us. Uh, but by the way, Klopp has promised the Liverpool supporters that a title parade, uh, a title-winning parade, will 
will be a part of it once everything is safe. So, uh, you know, you guys talking about, uh, Grail talking about players being in shape, playing themselves back into shape. Uh, Bundesliga has started earlier. That's going to give them an advantage, uh, we think, maybe in the Champions League to compete uh, to complete the round of 16 in August. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think so. On top of the fact that I just, again, I just think they're playing the best of the teams that are left in the Champions League right yeah. now. Again, things can change, but uh, I totally agree with your point. They have a head start. You know, they've been playing together. And um, the, the interesting thing about that, though, is they've already said that the final is going to be moved out of Istanbul because of COVID fears, and they're looking at maybe Lisbon as the new location for the I, final. I, so. I don't get that in the sense that is it so out of control in Istanbul that – that that Lisbon's going to be any better? It seems like it's well, maybe everywhere. maybe it's also a function of who they think can can manage the situation better. Maybe they right. just feel like Istanbul's, you know, the infrastructure of soccer there is just not as good as as in Portugal. And and Spain and Portugal had had it pretty bad with COVID nineteen. So maybe that's so maybe that's the thinking. They think it's yeah. maybe over you, there. It's already you spiked. Yeah. You would think they wouldn't necessarily have to name a host for the final until it was decided, right? right. It's well, not like hundreds. Well, but you got to plan ahead too, Sam, because you have people who might want to, you know, people traveling to the, the travel, game yeah. and stuff like that. But who, I mean, I but no one's do. allowed to go to the game. Uh, true. Yeah. Wow. Sam but, just no. nailed you, Grail. Hey, Sam. Sam <laughs> no, I mean, there, there some people. Uh, Sam, yeah. I'm thinking in the old world, Sam. You, you got me there. That was, that was like a Perry Mason episode. You just nailed the guy. On the... <laughs> well, I mean, like, Touche. Send me to be, prison. There'll be media there, and obviously you need some people to run the stadium, but it seems yeah. like they should be able to organize that pretty, pretty short term. Yeah, easier, yeah, for sure, because yeah. usually yeah. the crowd you worry about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one more, one more thing on Bayern who, yeah, are playing fantastic right now um, and have this little head start. But I think what the head start also means is that they won't have such a condensed schedule going forward where other yeah. teams will be playing, you know, every three days, they'll have a little more space uh, time to space it out. I'm also curious, you know, PSG, who are one of the favorites for the Champions League, have had their league shut down. You know, I mean, they they might be looking at, you know, five months without a game and then having to jump right back into a Champions League game. I mean, it's going to be yeah, rough. How does that, how does that can even work? Yeah, it's, just, like, it's like college soccer in America, man. You, gotta, yeah. you, gotta, you, you play two months and you take 10 off. So, yeah. um, all right, guys. So speaking of uh, soccer in America here, uh, Soccer America, one of our sponsors, as well as, well as Ticket IQ, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to the director of coaching education, at United Soccer Coaches, uh, the good man uh, himself, Ian Barker, will be here to talk to us. You're listening to OTB. We'll be right back. Great. Joining us now on Over the Ball, a returning champion here on OTB. He's the Director of Coaching Education at United Soccer Coaches. It's Mr. Ian Barker. Ian, welcome back to OTB. How are you? Hey, great, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Good to see you. So, look, a lot going on in the world, in the country, uh, really. And, you know, checking out your, your resume, your CV, and knowing about you and all the places you've coached. One of the places was McAllister St. Paul uh, from 89 to 96. And what are your feelings about what's going on in Twin Cities right now in the wake of the George Floyd um, incident? Yeah, well, we see a lot of the images uh, on television, which are, uh, the, the town that I lived in for 15 years. So uh, St. Louis Park, I think, which was right on the area that George Floyd 
died was was where I used to live. Um, and then, of course, in Kansas City, where I, I live now, we live half a mile away from an area called the plaza where the, the protests have been continuing. Mm -hmm. um, some of the positives that I see when you see examples of um, around the country where police officers have kneeled uh, in line with protests, um, peaceful protests, that, that kind of gives you some encouragement. Um, yeah. And I think if you think back just a couple of years ago, the Me Too movement and the, the full all of a sudden there was a shift with the Weinstein and Epstein and some of the, you know, Charlie Rose and some of those people. This one of all of the um, more recent uh, black deaths at the hand of law enforcement or those types of situations, this one seems to have resonated more and it might be because of the pandemic. But my hope is that out of this, maybe we, there is a, a more um, sustainable shift in attitude than, than previous, and, and that's where I see this sort of quasi-parallel with, uh, with me too. Yeah, you know, and I think I, I mentioned it in the opening, I am encouraged as well, Ian, in, in some respects, because it's uh, people from all walks of life are out there protesting. Um, you know, it's, it's not uh, uh, protesting, you know, the unfair treatment of, um, of blacks by the police officers, but I also feel as soccer people, and this is a soccer show, and I mentioned it at the opening, I have, learned so much in my own personal growth with the players that I've played with from all walks of life, every race, religion, ethnicity, that we play with them and they're our teammates and we go to, we go to battle with them. And I've seen, you know, on the field, racial incidents and things. And it's, it's sort of, you know, opened my eyes early on in my, my playing career. So I owe a lot to this game for uh, seeing that, that people are different, but we're all the same and we're all Americans. We all need to be treated the same. So, um, you know, so, you know, like I said, it, again, our thoughts and prayers go out uh, to everyone. And, and yeah, like you said, this can, this can bring about some real permanent change. And, you know, uh, I know both of us are kind of Liverpool fans as well. Van Dyke, he's, he staged something there with the, all the players, took a knee. Um, and it's, this is a worldwide event. And everyone looks to America for, by example. And, and uh, hopefully we can in this situation. So that's my little rant. And, you know, this is also, Ian, on the heels of uh, the pandemic. So, look, saying, saying you as a coach uh, and you lead all these coaches, soccer has known this. It's a very diverse community that, that plays soccer. So we're, we're, I think we're more aware of this than, than others. But this has become uh, an, an added wrinkle in your ability to coach. What, what's going on now between what you're dealing with with this and what you're dealing with pandemic? Have you changed uh, coaching philosophies or the approaches? Well, um, at a sort of 36,000 foot um, approach, we canceled all of our in-person education opportunities at least through July. So we shut down that traditional coach in-person education, but we've taken the opportunity to develop a course or um, a reformat of the courses. So we will continue to have the traditional format, but we've also created a blended format, which will mean more virtual time and a little bit less necessity to be in the big group traditional coach ed so we've taken some opportunities there for sure um and then you know one of the things we've looked at is and we talked to a, a pretty good sports psychologist a guy called ben freakley who was a division one college coach jumped out of helicopters with the army rangers and worked with them on psychological strength and is now working with toronto blue jays and he said this is really a period of time when you can look at it as a threat or, an, or a challenge. Um, so 
players, coaches, parents, everybody, what is your attitude to this kind of situation? And if you can shift from that fear, uncertainty realm into a slightly more positive opportunity to prepare, et cetera, I think that's good. From my perspective, and this is what I'm, I'm promoting right now, is when we go back as coaches, tell the kids what we're going to be doing soccer-wise, reassure them of the schedule, and basically, in my opinion, don't address COVID directly because they're getting enough of that from school and public health mm-hmm. and their parents. So I think soccer and return to soccer is an opportunity for us as coaches to really frame it in a very, you know, hey, we're back to recreation, competitive sports. And just reassure the kids that you you're aware that the schedule has been shifted, but don't make everything about you know re-examining what went on in during COVID. I, I just don't think that's our role as a coach. Yeah, a bit of a uh, more of a release for them, and you know you're following certain standards to you know reintroduce practices and things. So uh, I think that's probably a great idea. And also, I love the fact you know talking about the positives. What can we uh, what can we do in a positive way coming out of this? What can we learn from it? Grail, you had a question? Yeah, Ian, uh, thanks for joining us. So you, you've been in the role, I think, about eight years as a director of uh, coaching education at, at USC. I'm just curious, uh, putting the pandemic aside, <laughs> um, which is not easy to do, but just how that job has evolved over the last eight years, you know, in terms of what, how you've had to adapt, et cetera. Yeah, so... Obviously, many of your listeners will be aware I, I came after Jeff Tipping and what Jeff had been able to achieve and, and build. And during that, you know, during Jeff's tenure, there was a really uneven uh, effort on the part of U.S. soccer to be in the coaching education space. When I came in eight years ago, U.S. soccer had really made that full commitment to coach education. So NSCAA had a different place in the Whereas to some extent we were keeping the coach education community warm. Um, now we were kind of collaborating and or running parallel to US soccer. So that's been a change. Um, obviously advances in technology has been a change. Um, perhaps more of the soccer community at the grassroots level being a slightly more sophisticated consumer, if you will, right? So one of the examples I use is if I go into a classroom now with coaches, different from even eight years ago, and I say, for example, Ozil does this for Germany and he does this for Arsenal, Mm -hmm. they will all know who Ozil is and who Germany and Arsenal are. They might not have a deep, sophisticated response. So you can't wing it as an educator anymore. You can't be disrespectful of your audience, unintentionally disrespectful, because they're so much more uh, informed because of social media and and access to soccer on television. So one of the nice things about the job for now is you you as the educator and people in that space, you've got to keep moving all the time as well. Um, So at some point I need to be honest with myself and say, okay, I've probably gone as far as I can, somebody with new energy, because you can't, you're not allowed to mail it in in the game anymore, um, which, which I actually like. And then the other thing I would just share is um, you and I, Grau, were talking about growing up in England in the 70s and 80s. And back then, the clubs, but certainly the big FAs, were very closed shops. They were very elitist, very blazed up, and you were either with us or against us, and you couldn't really get in the club. You guys come to convention, you have lots of guests on your show. 
the willingness now in a global world, in a global nature of people to share stuff. So I just recently, yesterday, wrote to Man City and the English Professional Footballers Association looking for a document about physical proximity, a test they did, and they shared it with me. Well, you know, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. So I really like the fact that the game is much more accessible to people at, at all levels. Mm -hmm. uh, to build off that, Ian, um, over the last eight years, obviously, we've been through, you know, at U.S. Soccer, the Klinsman era. Now we're sort of in the Burhalter Dutch era. Um, and, you know, all these different influences from different countries coming in. Um, and like you're saying, uh, you know, it's a lot more accessible. So I'm wondering what you know, how, how you manage sort of balancing all these different styles and all these different approaches um, in a place like the U.S. that's so, so diverse? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I'll respond this way, Sam. I think, I think maybe one of the, the most difficult jobs in world football is, is the men's national team coach of the U.S. Um, because as soon as you make the squad MLS heavy, some genius says they want players from Europe. If you go with the Northern Western European kind of theme, maybe under sort of a Bruce Arena type era, everybody wants more of a Latin influence. Um, you know, Klinsman was using players playing in the Bundesliga, but maybe not quite as loyal to our national team uh, uh, mentality. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and, and you're looking at a country which is six time zones big, and you've got US youth and US club and AYSO, and then you've got what Brad Rothenberg is doing with, with, with the Latin community. So I, I, think, I think you have to be sensitive to all of these inputs, but whether you're a grassroots coach or a college coach, at some point, each of us has to find their own identity. And, and, and unlike in other countries, I really think you're challenged when you do that because, um, you know, I was coaching at a, at a pretty elite division three uh, liberal arts school, elite academically, very expensive it's really hard to recruit and have African-American players. It's that community is not attending that type of institution. Mm -hmm. um, so if somebody said to me, your team looks lily white, they would be absolutely correct. Would that be my personal choice or is that partly a reflection of circumstance? Um, the same as if Greg goes with MLS players and doesn't bring back some of the guys from Europe, he's going to get slaughtered if, if you don't get the results. So, at the end of the day, winning tends to diffuse the criticism, but I think it's a really, it's a unique challenge in the U.S. You know, it's interesting, Ian, because, you know, we're this rich melting pot here, this country of, of immigrants, and uh, you would think that a style would become our strength, that we're not one particular style, but we are. We have a Latin influence, we have a German influence, we have an English influence, and somehow that has not kind of gelled, coalesced, in this, and, and given us a style of play. Um, so, you know, and, and a lot of this has to do with the players that are being fed, fed up and basically with what you're dealing with. Um, and so there's been a lot of changes, uh, you know, U.S. soccer's, you know, shuttered the development academies. What are, what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, I, I think U.S. soccer would say we shuttered it because it had served its purpose. Um, I think it was a brave initiative. I could argue with whether it was executed well, because obviously it was really heavy, and, and US soccer knew this, it was really heavy in the deepest population pockets, but it did exclude the ability to maybe find a diamond in the rough for Montana, or possibly, mm -hmm. um, because they remained, most of them pay to play, certainly uh, players coming out of lower socioeconomic environments. 
where I really thought things progressed was when the MLS academies um, took away the need to pay to play. So now the MLS academies will take the player based on his or her, or his ability, excuse me, and it's not contingent upon their parents' uh, ability. If, if the MLS under Fred Lipka um, in their technical department, they're ready to um, reproduce a lot of the fine qualities of the DA experience, the environments, the, the competitions, the showcases. If MLS can do all of that infrastructure support and they can collaborate in a broader um, scouting network that really does touch all points of this country um, and feeds kids in. Because if you look at our youth national teams and our senior national teams, well, youth national teams, excuse me, um, all of those players are in MLS academies. So if MLS academies can find the kid in Montana and Nebraska and Maine and Hawaii and get them into Seattle and get them into Philly or whatever, um, then the, the federation, the, the national teams will be stronger for that. So I, I quite like the shift. Personally, I think the shift into the MLS taking that lead is, is a positive one. Good. Grail? Yeah, Ian, so you, you, see, you see all types of coaches in your, in your travels. And I'm just curious, you know, personally, what criteria do you use to measure an outstanding coach versus an average coach? What, what types of things would do you look at that kind of separates people? Yeah. Um, so if you look at the very highest level that most of your guests will probably immediately, you know, default to Guardiola, um, Mourinho, Klopp. Um, and then obviously I've had a great opportunity to chat with Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley and coaches and Ziggy, uh, the late Ziggy Schmidt. Um, there is more humility there than comes off in the public persona. So I do think a little bit of humility and self-awareness is good. Um, I had, Mourinho has got a little bit tougher. He was kind of softening with Spurs, but, um, but I met Mourinho a couple of years ago. And when you get past, the, when he knows there's no camera, he is a really, really nice person. So I think humility is part of it. I think though, honestly, at the college level, the, the youth club level, where the majority of us are operating most of the time, it is um, a little self-awareness, not thinking that all the wins are due to you, not all the losses are due to you, because I think we beat ourselves up too much. And then ultimately, um, you know, when I'm thinking again, college, high school, youth, a respect for your athletes individually and collectively. So if, if Sam and Grail and Kevin were all on my team, and we'll take Sam, he's the, he's the star striker, the pretty boy, He's got a little bit of selfishness in there. He's got a bit of attitude. But Kevin, the steady, loyal centre-back. So I need to appreciate those differences um, and then make it a cohesive group. So I think, I think respect for your athlete is a huge part of what we should be. And, and I think, you know, at the elite level where you're buying and selling and moving them in and out, it's, it look, looks different. But I can tell you that um, those guys have that type of mentality. And I mm. think, again... In the middle levels, respect of your athlete and self-awareness. You know, I've always said, Ian, that a, that a great coach also, especially at higher levels, acts as a psychiatrist in many ways. You know, and do you approach different players, uh, every one of them in a different way? Or do you have like, this is the system, buy into it. Um, I'll, I'll identify your role in it, but here's the system. Because it seems like, you know, certain players are motivated in, in, in different ways, in different respects to each player. Yeah, well... I'll share a quick story. Um, 
because I think sometimes, you know, story's good. So I was at ODP a number of years ago, 20 plus years ago in Wisconsin. Um, I was a state coach. I was terrified of the regional guys. I wanted to be a regional coach, but I was a state coach. And I played in the semifinal against Kentucky. And I brought a guy on. He scored a hat trick. We won 3-1. The regional coaches pull me in and say, what are you doing? Why did your best player not start? We like him. We want to select him. But there must be some issue. And this was really just more winging it. This wasn't like I was really that knowledgeable. But I said, well, here's the thing. The kid's, the kid's kind of an issue. He's a striker. He's selfish. He's exactly what I just described, Sam, hypothetically. <laughs> go, fi go figure, yeah. And, striker um, who's selfish. And, but he, he reacts better if he comes off the bench because he's mad at me and he's got a chip on his shoulder. So, yeah, absolutely. But if I had a, a centre-back or a number six or a goalkeeper that had that kind of personality – they would have a short, uh, short career in my team. Great. Go ahead, Grail. Um, yeah, just uh, in, in you're in the business of coaching, Ian. So I'm going to ask this question delicately. Um, as, as a coming from a player and a coach, is is there the danger sometimes of too much coaching, especially with young players? They're over coaching, where you actually take the talent, you you kind of suppress the talent because you're so into the tactical side and, and those types of things. I'm just curious from your perspective, if you think that that's a trap that uh, a lot of our coaches have fallen into just too much information. Yeah, we we've gone, you'll find you, you'll struggle to find people in this country that uh, coach educators who, who will argue that we've gone too we've gone too far away from teaching technique and refining technique couple of reasons. It takes time. It's hard work. Sometimes um, the players might not be as excited uh, with technical training. And I think the other challenge is we've got a lot of grassroots uneducated coaches who it's easier to get a chalkboard out and draw X's and O's and triangles than it is to refine the ability to plant your foot, strike the ball at the right time and give kids repetition and frequency. So that, that, is, that is a challenge for us. Um, I also think um, we, well, we're all aware of overcoaching, right? Too much talking from the sideline during the game, too much interruption in the training. We, the romantic notion, we're all going to go back and play on the park all the time and learn the game organically. I think we're beyond that. I think we can find ways to replicate it. So I'm hoping that during the pandemic, those people that have outdoor space, their kids have been allowed to play in the back garden one-on-one -on -one with a big brother and sister. Um, yeah, you're here. But yeah, yeah I, I, you're right, Grail. And, but I think. I think we're all aware of it. And I mm -hmm. think in different pockets, we're making intelligent adjustments. Sam, did you have one more question? Yeah, just one more question, you know, sadly to turn back to the, to the pandemic right now. But um, I'm just wondering if you think, and there's been a little bit of talk of this already before this all happened, but um, that U.S. soccer may become a little more regional in nature as a result of this whole, you know, issue. And if you think that might be a positive overall in some ways. Well, I would love to see, um, again, I really appreciate the question because I, I think prior to everything, I think we were all aware that the economy of the youth game, particularly the youth game, was just starting to get crazy, right? So eight-year-olds leaving New York to fly across to Las Vegas to play other eight-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> How can you not find a group of eight-year-olds in New York within your zip code to play? Yeah. Um, so if one of the outcomes, now clubs need an economic driver, so they need tournaments and they need other resources. 
But if it does become a little, you know, for a couple of years, that the teams in New York, New Jersey tend to find competition there and not travel out. You can still have your tournaments and events, um, but you, you cut down on travel. You cut down on some of the extraneous expenses of air travel or, or maybe in some cases hotels. And people start, I mean, one of, the, one of the additional things is, right, more family time. So all of those parents with two or three kids who are, are taking in 10, 12 games at a tournament weekend and driving all over heck and never having family meals, they've had that the last couple of months. And if people appreciate that, I think, I think you're right. I think there could be a nice reset in the economy and the, uh, the metrics and execution of the youth game without the youth game going away. It just sort of shifts a little bit. Uh, you know, Ian, I wanted to ask you one more thing. We only have about a minute left, but, um, you know, you're like this linchpin from the from coaching kids and, um, you know, the director of coaching. You've coached at the college level. We're big fans of the college game here, but we think it's in many ways broken. Uh, and I, I just wanted to ask you quickly, are you, are you in support of the split season? Do you think that would be a good thing for the NCAA Division One teams? Or what do you think? Because it seems like the NCAA is uh, just not really paying much attention to soccer as a potential growth partner. And it's not getting its due and it's sort of shriveling up a little bit. Well, we lost, you know, we've lost a couple of programs, right? Because of mm -hmm. economics, um, Appalachian State's one that comes to mind. Um, at the division one level, the split season to me makes a ton of sense. It's better for the students academically and health wise. It'll improve the level of play. It'll keep the coaches um, more meaningfully engaged. I love it. Um, whether athletic directors, um, want to interrupt their normal flow of life and their basketball and football, American football schedules to accommodate men's, women's soccer, that remains to be seen. At the Division Three level, it makes less sense to me because the traditional experience of the liberal arts is you play your sport, in this case soccer, in the fall, and you study abroad and you maybe run track in the spring. But I think, you know, the work that Rob Keogh has done, Sasha Shirovsky, um, Bob Warming, some of these people to, to help Jeremy Gunn pushed this into the, the split season on the, on the D1, certainly the men's side. I can't, don't know as much for the women in terms of recruit periods and things, but I, right. you know, it'd be great if we could see it. I'm not unduly optimistic, but it would be great if it could happen. Great. All right. Well, we uh, agree with you, with you here uh, on that one. Uh, Ian Barker, Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches. Uh, as always, pal, we appreciate you jumping on. Um, you are the key to our future. The children are our future, and we want to, uh, we want to win a World Cup. So, um, so get busy, Ian. <laughs> get busy. Uh, thanks for joining us on OTB. We'll talk to you again. Thanks, guys. I always love catching up with Ian Barker. Uh, you know, it's a very thoughtful guy. And like I said, I think he's kind of a linchpin because uh, he has, you know, coached youth and directed the, the, the coaches. He's also coached college. And he was, I think, spot on with his comments about college soccer, mm -hmm. which are near and dear to all of our hearts as former players. So, uh, so good stuff. We, we have to have him on more. Definitely. No, I, yeah. I, I, I liked his observations about some of the challenges that are that are ahead and again his background is is fantastic in terms of a former coach at McAllister and then he also coached he also worked within the youth system so he's just got a fantastic perspective for that job 
Yeah, yeah he played I, with a lot of guys I played with too. He um, it was a good player. Sam? Yeah, I thought his point was interesting about you know the the idea of kids playing in the backyard, banging the ball against the wall. Yeah. You know, how the technology? Well, we're saying that you know we we do have the sort of technology to teach this technique. You know, from from a coach, you don't have to learn it on your own. And um, made me think a little bit about Italy because in my experience, having lived there for a few years, like you don't see kids playing on their own a lot, like you might think the sort of image really? you have of kids just kicking a ball in an alleyway or something. The game there is much more, it's really structured from, you know, very early on. Um, and the stuff they teach kids is very different. You know, you learn about balance, you learn about technique in a totally different way, but it's very controlled. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's harder well, here because it's, it's so big and, you know, it, it's hard to get everyone on the same page, but um, uh, just, just interesting. Yeah. And then you look at it, you look at a country like Brazil with the the flamboyance and it's encouraged. Um, Uruguay, such a small country with such a global impact, the amount of players that they produce, such a small nation, but they they tend to be uh, well skilled but really tough and disciplined. Yeah. Well, every you know from from when we grew up, I mean things are just much more organized. You know that's and that's so we went out in the backyard and played because that's what the options were. And now the options are you got to get into, you know, some kind of academy by the time you're 10. Otherwise, you're not going to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's one thing. The star player. One thing Ian said that sort of was really made sense to me. Um, he said, look, that whole nostalgia of playing in the backyard um, to develop as a player or in the streets is kind of gone. It, yeah. it, it sort of is. It's hearkening back to a time that's, you know, we have to face what the reality is. Certainly, if you have a kid, encourage him to play in the backyard, you know, um, or, you know, I used to know a kid in high school developed his skill by just, he brought a soccer ball with him all the time yeah. and he'd have it in the, in the hallway of the high school. And the teachers were like, whatever, but just to put, he, you know, he's dribbling as he's going through the, uh, the, the hallways in the afternoon. It's like, you know, look for play with, you know, places to get more uh, training. So you'll appreciate this funny. Uh, my coach in, at Middlebury, Ron McKeachin, who you know, Keech, insisted yeah. our freshman year that everybody dribble a tennis ball to and from practice all during preseason. And we had to go through this. We cut through the cemetery on the way down to the field house, and we had to go through this incredibly long grass. And I, I just, we were cursing him by like day three, the idea that we were going to be yeah. dribbling a tennis ball you know, like half a mile down to the... Uh, I can see a real ball. Uh, yeah. You know, at college campus, our sweeper used to do that. He'd walk on college campus with a soccer ball, just dribble it around at UMass yeah. Amherst. David Harrington, I remember. And he had the big mullet going. And he said, my God, I goes, this is the only, this is one of the best ways to meet women. <laughs> college campus. So, all right. So, uh, Sam, what do you got for us this week? Yeah, good game to check out on Saturday. Bayer Leverkusen against Bayern Munich. That's 9.30 on FS1. Um, As we've mentioned, Bayern have kind of sealed the title, but they are really, really fun to watch regardless. Um, And Leverkusen are a fun team. They have the uh, aforementioned Kai Havertz, uh, who's becoming a really, really quality player. Um, I also got a little quiz for you guys uh, okay. just to wrap it up. I'm going to try to make this a weekly thing. It's not as in-depth. Do, uh, do we need a number two pencil? Or no, okay? it's not as in-depth as last time. It's very simple. But, um, yeah, here we go. So there's lots of talk about the relegation situation in the Premier League and the potential of having, you know, 23 teams next year if they just do away with relegation this year. Um, so my question is, how many clubs were in the league for the Premier League's inaugural season in 
Okay, let's think about this. I'm going to say it was more. You think more than the number now? Well, let me think about this. Those people didn't. I can smell brain burning. God, I should know this. Um, I'd say. I'd say I'm going to say it's 26. Kevin? The 24. Okay, it's 22, actually. Oh! Um, and the league then went to 20 clubs in 95-96, with uh, four teams being relegated the year prior, and only two right. promoted from the first division. And that was to get okay. more in line with uh, the rest of Europe and UEFA. Sam, you managed to make me look stupid every week, for which that uh, I greatly appreciate. I think your parents <laughs> made you look stupid. <laughs> yes, I blame it on mom and dad, may God rest their souls. Hey, um, uh, you know, we got to get going here, but one yeah. quick thing, Grail, what's happening with MLS and their collective bargaining agreement? Yeah, so they've, they've come to a kind of a revised um, CBA for now, um, just, to, just to make sure that this season can get off the ground in June 24th down in Orlando. They're going to do that six-week tourney. And they, do, they, they have to take some, uh, some uh, salary cuts for this year. It's kind of a stopgap. A solution but that's yeah. fine this way they get the season up and running again uh at the end of june in orlando and they'll i guess i guess they'll be there before the nba so i was trying to think they're all they're wow. both going to be down there i don't know if they're going to be overlapping in terms of their time oh my goodness think about the epicenter of sports you're going to be have mls yeah. going on and the nba going on i don't again i'd have to check i think the nba is coming back maybe late july down so at Disney World. Down at Disney yeah. World. So yeah, like, the wide uh, world sports. Pretty American. So okay, everybody. Uh, that's all the time we have on over the ball. I'd like to thank our guest Ian Barker uh, from the Soccer Coaches Association. There. Uh, also, our 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 great sponsors, Soccer America and Ticket IQ. For Sam Griswold, Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTP.